Welcome to the Lex City Church Podcast. To learn more about the ministries of Lex City, please visit LexCity.Church. Big thought for today. You can be sincere, totally committed, passionate, and genuine, and still be genuinely wrong, right? Ancient world, the thoughts of both ancient Greece, India, and even China was what? That the world was flat, the great philosopher Homer would write about the earth and its flatness that was there. Some say the Roman Catholic Church warned Columbus, before you go to sail to the unknown worlds, be careful lest you sail off the end of the earth. Modern day NBA superstar Kyrie Irving convinced the world is flat. Uh, notorious rapper B.O.B. writing his song Flatline, the world is flat. Now listen, you can be genuine, and uh, if you're thinking the world's flat, you know, no big harm, a little foolishness and all of that. I mean, all that's going to happen, we're going to make some fun memes about you. You know, some of these are great, I think of Kyrie and all of them. Uh, but you can be genuine and wrong. I, I can be genuine and, uh, and wrong. See, I genuinely think the greatest decade to ever grow up as a teenager was the 80s. And uh, I ge- thank you for the seven of us older folks. That, I mean... And genuinely, I believe our fashion taste was spot on. Now, my younger staff looks at some of these pictures, and they're convinced I'm genuinely wrong. They're like, it could not have been that windy in the 80s that everybody needed a windsuit, but they were fly. And uh, neon should not be everywhere and used in clothing, you know, keep it for the glow sticks and Nobody should wear leggings outside of Jane Fonda out of one aerobics thing, you know? So they look at me and say, you're genuine, Brian, but you're genuinely wrong. Fashion is today, you know, in these things. So all of these can be fun. But what happens when you're genuine in your thinking about something that matters even into the area of eternity? What happens when our thinking about our genuine thought of what it takes to, to please God or, or what it takes to, to be saved is different. All around the world, we have people who are genuinely devoted to their thinking and their ideology about faith. But today, I want to remind you that just because you're genuine doesn't mean that you aren't genuinely and genuinely wrong. One of the most influential men in human history The main character of the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul, in the book of Acts, chapter 19, or 9 through 28 are really devoted to the Acts of the Apostles, but 9 to 28 really is the Acts of Paul. The man who wrote 14 of the 27 New Testament books had one of the greatest influences on human history. When we join him in his spiritual journey at the very beginning, he's believing a lie. He's genuine. But we're going to see today that he was genuinely wrong. And it was a lie that could cost him ultimately his soul. It's a condition that 2,000 years later and into the future, many people are going to find themselves in. I'm reminded Matthew chapter 7 gives us this warning and this, it, this hollowing thought. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven... And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And the scary, sobering thought is on the day of the return of the Lord, 
or on the day that we take our last breath and stand before the Lord, there will be many who will be surprised that they missed the promise of heaven. The Apostle Paul, we'll see today, would have been one of those people. Early on in his spiritual journey, he believed what ended up to be a lie. Now, if you think about that, it's pretty staggering. Nobody was more genuine than Paul. Nobody was more zealous about their faith and attempting to please God. But Paul himself will write later in his own writings, listen, (laughs) I was genuine, but I was genuinely wrong. So that's what we're going to look this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, let's go to the book of Acts chapter 9. If you're new here, if you've got your phones, you go to lexcity.info. All the sermon notes are there. I've got a little chart that I'm going to make reference to a little bit later on in the sermon, and it's there. And so as you're turning to Acts chapter 9, let me just remind you, this year I, I chose the book of Acts to study because I want to remind you today in our culture and our time the importance of your voice, the importance of your witness. Because the answer to the broken world that we find ourselves and that we live in today is not going to be found in any political party. It's not going to be found in any government program. Unity and love, compassion for one another is not going to be found in blind tolerance. We're going to see again that compassion and healing and purpose can only be found in Jesus and in the synopsis of what the gospel is. And that's the hope found almost 2,000 years ago in the book of Acts, in this gospel-centered movement that evolved and became this thing called the church, which the Lord has said will be the hope of the world until he returns. So here's a question I want to point for us today. If the gospel is centered, the gospel and who Jesus is, and that we believe not only who he is, but he did the things that he said he will do, that we are going to have to be convinced that these things are true. This is why when Jesus rose from dead, if you remember the book, he spent 40 days with his apostles, 40 days to remind them, listen, I want you to know this beyond a shadow of a doubt. I want you to be convinced that the things that you're going to speak to the world around, that salvation comes in pleasing the Father, only comes through Jesus alone. I want you to believe this and know this in your heart and gut beyond a shadow of a doubt that you will be convinced that Jesus is the only way. That's why in John 14, 6, Jesus says this. Says to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. That means hard truth. I can have a genuine thought on faith and belief But if the belief is found in anything other than Jesus Christ being the only way to heaven, that belief is wrong. And that's hard to say in this day and age, right? We fear of being called intolerant, right? We we fear of becoming narrow-minded. We fear of that kind of words. Listen, oh, that seems so judgmental, like you're judging somebody else's faith and somebody else's belief and different things. And so what we do as the church, if we're not careful, we just stay quiet. I don't want to offend. I don't want to be labeled. I don't want to be canceled. Your truth is your truth, right? So you just believe what you're going to believe, and I'll kind of just hope it all works out at the very end. But can I just remind you today, just because somebody insists something is true doesn't mean that it is true, right? Truth is not fluid. Truth is not ever-changing. Truth is not determined by your preferences. Truth is not determined by your opinions. What did Jesus say? Jesus says, I am the truth, and no one comes to the Father 
except through me. She was probably one of the most genuine people I had ever met in my life. It was my neighbor growing up, old grandmothery, Catholic devoted Mary, sweetest woman you had ever met, so kind. She didn't yell at us as kids and we ran across her lawn. If you left a bike in the driveway, it would be okay. Mary was just genuine and kind and such a good woman. And my mom, who loves people, has this evangelistic heart, had relationships with all of our neighbors, and so she had a relationship with Mary over decades, and they would have these spiritual conversations that would come down. My mom would ask the, the great question in different ways, but the question of this, Mary, if you died today and you stood before God, and God said, Mary, why should I let you into heaven? What would you answer? And Mary, in her devotion and her upbringing, would simply say, I don't know. But I hope I've done enough good works to overcome the bad things of my life. I know I've tried to be devoted. I don't miss mass. I do this, and I've done this, and I've done this. And at the very end, I just hope I've done enough that I can go to heaven. And over time, my mom would begin to share the difference and understanding about how a works-based earning your way to salvation versus a faith-based trusting in what Jesus has done for her on the cross and uh, over time, they would have those conversations. And in one of those conversations, Mary simply said these words to my mom. She says, you know what? Dot's my mom's name. Dot, I, I think you're right. And like we'll see a little bit later here, like Saul, who the scales fall off his eyes to what truth is, Mary had this moment of understanding that I've been trying to earn my way for God's favor and I keep falling short. And at the end of my days, I wanna know for sure and I, want to, and I understand the difference between trusting in Jesus rather than trusting in what I can do. And I love about my mom, I love that she wasn't just following into the cultural pressures to say, hmm, just keep silent. Last thing we want is our neighbors to label us as you know, very narrow-minded, judgmental, Jesus kind of people. I'm glad she had the courage to say, I believe this to be true. And I want to share it with you. It wasn't long after the neighbor lady on the other side sitting at our kitchen table praying to receive Christ and uh, into her life and all these things. Here's the point. They were wonderful women who were genuine in the thing, but they at some point were not seeing what real truth was and they would have missed it. And today, the same would have been true today of the apostle Paul. Early in his journey, Saul, devoted, zealot, genuine, but genuinely trusting in the wrong things for his salvation. <laughs> Acts chapter nine, we're gonna pick up the story, and so here we pick it up with Saul. Now, if you're new, it's kind of confusing. The apostle Paul, before he came to know Christ, we refer to him as Saul, and then after he comes to know Christ, we refer to him as Paul, just to keep it making more confusing for you. So today, we're gonna talk about Saul before that time. So here's a little bit of the story of Saul. Acts chapter nine, verse one. So Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now you may hear that and say, that doesn't sound like the apostle Paul, the kind apostle Paul that I know of. I mean, this is the guy who there are buildings, St. Paul, that, that are churches that are named after him. Why is this Saul guy so angry? Why is he so intolerant of things? Why is there such hate that's spewing from his very being? Well, I want to take two weeks, uh, this Sunday and next Sunday, and answer a little bit of that question. Today, I want to look at the life of Saul before he comes to know Christ and maybe give us some insight into why was Saul so anti 
this man named Jesus. And then next week, we want to talk about what Saul was like after his conversion. When the scales fell and he saw the truth, how his life was dramatically impacted. And we're going to look about that a little bit next, uh, next week. So let me give some context for Acts chapter 9. It's been six years since the Virgin Mary gave birth to a dark, olive-skinned Jewish baby. This baby grows up to be a man, a man who will change the course of human history, the incarnate Jesus Christ who through his death split the curtain in the temple, through his resurrection gave evidence of his deity, and he tells the most important story ever told through the life that he lives here on this earth. 961 miles to the north, uh, another baby is being born. He's not the most important baby to ever live, but he too will change the course of human history not by living out the most important story, but by telling the most important story that's ever been told. His name was Saul, Saul of, of Tarsus. He was born to the tribe of Benjamin. He was probably named after one of his most famous ancestors, King, any guess? Saul, see, you're, you're a sharp group. Don't let yourself tell yourself anything different. You're sharp, right? So he's probably named after King Saul that was there. Um, this idea of his heritage, we're going to look about this, this plays a big role in his ministry that we're going to see uh, next week. But he's born in the town of, of Tarsus. So Tarsus, we'll find it in modern-day Turkey. You'll see it a little bit here on the map. Uh, Tarsus was conquered 70 years before Saul was born by the Roman Empire. A little history for you. So when the Roman Empire would colonize a, a, a country here, if there were people who were landowners they would maintain the rights of their land, and ultimately, if it was Rome, they would become Roman citizens. So part of the thought is potentially that Saul's grandparents owned land in Tarsus, so when Rome colonized them, they maintained their land, so they became Roman citizens, and not only did they become Roman citizens, but they had the freedom to practice their religious faith without persecution because of that citizenship. All right, so land ownership gave you citizenship, gave you freedom, Next week, that's going to become a really important factor. So tuck that one away. So Tarsus, it's the capital of Ecclesia, uh, which was one of, it's an amazing city and region. Uh, it was one of the wealthiest, a big hub of trade and wealth and knowledge. It boasted a university that was only second to Athens in terms of prestige. So you get the idea that's here. So Saul grows up in this culture. And because he's a Roman citizen, he has access to the university, he has access to all the knowledge and the things that are going on here. So he grows up in a degree of, of privilege and influence that's there. Saul's father, for his first 14 years of life, Saul's father we know was a tent maker. Uh, he was a Pharisee. And so Saul grew up in this kind of learning. When he was age 14, his father then calls on a longtime family friend called Gamal, and Gamal was one of the high priests of the region at that time. He was one of the leading Pharisees of the day. And so Saul's father calls in a favor to say, can Saul come study underneath you? Now, Gamal was really interesting. He had a very progressive, liberal, uh, Judaistic uh, view of the law and how it works. And his big emphasis was how the law would impact everyday life. He was almost teaching a little bit of the first ever prosperity gospel. He was teaching the idea that the law would make you prosperous, 
The law would make you wiser. The law would make you healthier. And so it had this great appeal to the middle class and the upper class because they could become wealthy if they would just follow Gamal's version of the law that was there. And so that's a little bit of the context. Saul, being a sharp guy, rises really quickly up into the ranks. And he now is elected by Gamal to be one of 10 Pharisees who will sit on the highest ranking council in Jerusalem called the Sanhedrin. And you'll see a picture of it here. The Sanhedrin uh, held most of the religious authority for Judaism in the area, and their members were made up of different high priests of different sects, plus these Pharisees that were chosen. And so here's the key thing. When the Sanhedrin made a law, that law was not only true in Jerusalem, it was true throughout the entire region that's there. And I'm giving you all of that context because some of you history people love the geeking out and all this. And so for the rest of you, I'm telling you this for this reason. I want you to understand why Saul hated Jesus and the followers of Jesus so much. Why he had such passion to squelch this movement. And we're gonna see this, that it all came out of Saul's training that's there. He had this genuine fervor to please God and do what was right, but he was genuinely wrong. So Saul, once he completes all this training, he's part of the Sanhedrin, his first assignment is to return back to this northern area of Tarsus to be their spiritual leader, right? To govern this area. But when he returns up to Tarsus, he learns of this new sect, this new movement, this new movement that's happening in Judaism that's been going on for several months, and it's taken the city by storm. Saul walks up, and this is all everybody is talking about. This new movement follows a man who claims to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies. They're following this man who was born in Nazareth, who claims to be God himself incarnate, right? And these followers call themselves, they are followers of the way. The way to please God. Now think about this. Saul's a Sanhedrin. They are the spiritual leaders. If anybody is going to show people the way to follow God, it is them. And now this movement is calling themselves the way, how offensive this could be. And what made this even a greater abomination to Saul was that the leaders of this movement weren't the spiritually elect and the highest educated. Who were they? They were fishermen. And normal people like you and I that were leading this thing who claimed to know the way to God. So Saul, with the support of the Sanhedrin, all right, they pass a law that has impact on these followers of Jesus called the way. And they say to him, listen, you no longer can say that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And so what did the disciples do? They know the truth. They've been with Jesus 40 days before this moment. So they continue to proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God with great boldness. And Saul, in his anger in this, then captures one of the leaders of this movement called the Way, and his name is Stephen. And they bring Stephen in to question Stephen because I've got to understand more fully what this movement is all about. Acts 7, let me tell you the account. Now they, when the, when the Pharisees had heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, being Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and 
stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out into the city and they stoned him. And the witness laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they were stoning Stephen and he cried out, being Stephen, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The first martyr for Christianity was Stephen. And Saul is a major character and a central figure in all of this. So word quickly spreads of Stephen's death and the martyrdom of that. And you think that would squelch the church. But this is what we know about the church of Jesus Christ. You persecute it. It does nothing more than grow. We see that in India. And our, our pastors there that we support. And when the government squelches, this little house's church grows. New things grow up. And the church always prospers even under the prosperity and the, and the persecution of whatever government happens. And this is the same thing that happens. And the church begins to grow. This way movement grows. And it grows in the northern part of the, the kingdom even greater. And so the Sanhedrin, again, pass a law. Remember, whatever law is passed in here, Jerusalem's for the whole region, saying simply this, that any Jewish family living in Antioch or anywhere else can no longer participate and be a member of this movement called the way. And if they are, they risk being put to arrest or even worse, being put to death. And so who would be better to proclaim and share this new law that the Sanhedrin has passed to the northern parts? Who would be the best person? Well, Saul would be the best person. He's from Tarsus. This is his area. These are his people. So his very first assignment, he's gonna take a three-day walk from Jerusalem to go to proclaim the new law that the Sanhedrin had passed. His heart is full of zeal, conviction. He has this genuine passion, but again, he was genuinely wrong. If you were to ask Saul while he was traveling those three days, Saul, are you pleasing God? Saul would have said, absolutely, I am pleasing God. I mean, can you believe the heresy, the lies? They're sharing this thing that this man called Jesus from Nazareth is the one who's fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. They're saying this man who was crucified on a, on a cross when I know that the law says in Deuteronomy chapter 21 that anyone who is hung on a tree will be cursed, so you can't tell me that God would send the Messiah to become the curse on behalf of mankind. That's heresy. You can't speak those kind of things. How blasphemous that you would say that this Jesus, who is from of all places, Nazareth, and we know this, nothing good ever comes from Nazareth. This is not the Messiah. There's no way. And then to continue to go on to say that he rose again from the dead, it's just heresy. This dangerous sect of thinking has got to be eliminated from the kingdom in this region that I'm now in charge of as the spiritual leader. Can you hear, Saul? It's now the mission of my life to free my home country from this lie, that lie that's coming from the pit of hell. Because <laughs> the law that Saul holds so freely to and so closely to says this, right? That the way that we please God, the way that we experience the reward of heaven is to obey all the requirements of the law. Works. Do these things, you will please God. Avoid these things, but do these things. Works-based. And he believes that not only does we follow the law, do we get the promise of heaven, but if we follow the law, it will quicken the return of the Messiah. So when these heretics called the way said, Jesus came to fulfill the law and do away with the law, can you understand for Saul, while this is everything against who his 
personal identity is. He is now a Sadducee who fulfills the law and protects the law. It's everything against his spiritual identity. You are now telling me that I don't get to heaven by good works. I get to heaven by trusting in this Jesus, that Jesus did the work on the cross, and now I just have to trust in him rather than my own self-sufficiency. Do you get the point why it is so radically different? Saul's anger begins to, to boil. Jesus is putting everything that he believes in at risk. Go on to verse three. Now as he went on his way, this being Saul, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone from around him. And falling to the ground, he heard the voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. <laughs> so this dramatic event, if you've been around church, this is the road to Damascus experience, right? This light is, is so bright that the voice is so dynamic that those that are traveling with Saul begin to fall to the ground. But the voice they're hearing is not for them. The voice they're hearing is for Saul. And it says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul seems to imply through his writings that the great light that the masses that the group with him saw that the great light that he saw was not simply just a great light that the great light was Jesus himself Acts chapter 9 verse 17 Ananias says brother Saul the Lord who appeared to you on the road Acts chapter 9 verse 27 says Barnabas took Saul to the apostles and he told them that he had seen the Lord on the road 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15 one of the reasons Paul says, I have the right to be called an apostle is that I have seen the risen Lord. The men who had joined him on that journey saw a bright light, but I would propose to you today that Saul saw Jesus himself. And so when Jesus says to him, why are you persecuting me? This is extremely personal and direct, right? When you persecute my church, he says, Saul, you're persecuting me. When you persecute my people, you're persecuting me. And in that moment, Saul realizes, listen, that his truth is not the truth. In that moment, he realizes that this Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified is now alive. And if he was alive, then he was truly the Messiah. And if he was truly the Messiah, then he fulfills the law that Saul has been proclaiming so strongly. Paul, all these years, had thought he was serving God, but in this moment of truth, realizes that he ultimately has been an enemy of God. And that revelation, think about that, in that moment demands probably the most difficult thing for a self-serving, uh, spiritually arrogant, self-righteous Pharisee to do. In that moment, it demanded that Saul humble himself and repent. There's a moment of decision that's there. So verse eight, Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drink. Saul, who had relied on his own abilities, right? His own goodness, his own godliness to follow the letter of the law in all things, that Saul, the man through his own efforts, 
felt like I'm earning the favor of God by the things that I'm doing and the good works that I'm accomplishing, that my human efforts have made me good enough. In that moment, on the road to Damascus, God takes everything away. Saul can do nothing. He can't work. He can't earn God's favor. He can't even eat. He can't even drink in this moment. God is stripping him of all evidence of self for a teachable moment. And some of you can relate to that story. That's your, that's your faith story. God, through circumstances, stripped you of everything. Your pride, your control, your circumstances. And you hit this rock bottom moment when there was nothing but your ability to look up and say, God, I need your help. Some of you, that's your story. I've tried, I've done all these things, I'm doing it, and I've got nothing left. I'm at the end of my ropes. That's the beauty of positioning before God and repentance and humility. And here is Saul, the man who accomplished all these things by his efforts, now sits blind, doing nothing. And in our weakness, right, he becomes our strength. Verse 10. Now there was a, a disciple, last little part, of Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. <laughs> but Ananias answered, I love this, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how evil he has done in this, to the saints of Jer at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call of your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight, and he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Saul, with this genuine vision of what true truth was, right? He came, three-day journey, what, to persecute the church, to squelch this thing, to dismiss these evidences of this man named Jesus from Nazareth. But in that moment, he literally comes face to face with not only God, but the truth of God's word. And it changes him. And in that moment, Saul now has a new story. And it's a story he literally is gonna share with the world and it's a story that's gonna share, really change the course of mankind. And again, we're gonna see that a little bit more next week. So this morning, we started with two groups. Genuine faith, fully committed, right? We have Saul and the Sadducees that were here. We have fully committed, fully devoted people of the way followers of this man named Jesus. Both were genuine, but only one of these could truly possess what is really truth. Today, there are millions of people around this world who have a genuine desire to be men and women of faith, to, to find ways to please God, to have the, the promise and the hope of heaven. But I want to remind you today that all of these versions of how we please God can't possibly all be true. If they're all true, there is no truth, right? So in your notes, I, I just put a little chart there. We'll look at it later, five biggest religions in our world. Read those. They're, they're, 
the two contrastingly different ways on how we please God and know God. We, they all can't be true. Truth is not relative. Truth isn't figure out your own truth. One has to be right because they all can't be right. And that's the reminder that, that, that Paul faces. I think about our world now. I think most of our world religions, they fall in four big categories, right? They're things like this. Most of them fall into this. The biggest group is, is the folks that would say this. They believe that you work or earn your way to heaven, right? Human effort, human wisdom leads to an enlightenment, leads to appeasing God. Biggest groups, you know, of our Hindus, Buddhist, Buddhism around the world, this idea of works-based salvation that's there. Another category includes folks like Wicca, uh, some of our Unitarianisms, that, this idea that denies there's any need for salvation because there's no sin, right? Man is inherently good, and so we just need to get in touch with that part so there's no need. Atheists, right, fall into another third big category that feels there is no God, there's no life after this, so just live your life. This is what it is. Just be here in these moments. Fourth one. You know, Christianity is, is this. It's the only religion that teaches man can do nothing to earn or pay his way into heaven. Out of all the religions of the world, it's the only one that says, you can't earn your way. You can't work hard enough. That's there. So how can all of these, they can't all be true, is, is the point I just want to remind you of, of this morning. There is either an afterlife or there is not an afterlife. You are either the instrument of your own salvation or Jesus is the only way please God in the way to the Father. Jesus was either a good man or a prophet or just a moral person in human history or he was the Son of God. And no matter how genuine your thoughts are on all of these in different ways, listen, they all can't genuinely be right and they all aren't genuine truth. <laughs> Saul says, I came to a moment where I understood even in my desire that I was wrong and there is only one way to please God. So this morning as we close out our time, can I just remind you of the genuine truth? John chapter 14, Jesus said to him, what? I am the way and the truth and the life that no one comes to the Father except through me. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. There's only one way to heaven and one way to please God. And that's through the work of Jesus Christ. As we close out our time this morning, can I just invite you to stand? We're going to close in a song this morning. So stand just where you are. And as we sing this song, I want to remind you, we're not just singing songs because, oh, it's a neat melody and all oh, I kind of like to listen. This is a proclamation of the truth that 2,000 years later we believe to be true. This is a proclamation of people who are of the way to God. The song speaks of the truth that is found in the book of Acts. The truth of the fulfillment of the law, the virgin birth, the resurrection, and the birth of the church. And this is our proclamation.
Thank you for listening to the Lex City Church podcast. If you would like to support ministries of Lex City, visit lexcity.church/give. Please subscribe and follow us on social media at Lex City Church for more encouraging teachings and content.